Hello, Marvelites! Welcome to This Week in Marvel, episode number 367. I'm Ryan, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Jamie, a.k.a. Agent... Agent Present. Agent Present. All right. Uh, (laughs) This week... Oh, man. If you heard our bonus episode with the band Bayside, you heard a little bit of big news this week, but I'm starting it off again because it is still top news of the week. Marvel's Wolverine, The Lost Trail, season two of our original podcast series, has been announced. 10 episodes, second season will be available exclusively on Stitcher Premium starting in winter 2019, then released widely later in the year, just like Marvel's Wolverine the Long Night. Uh, You got Richard Armitage, he is back, plus Bill Irwin as Jason Wingard, Bill Heck as Remy LeBeau, and Blair Brown as Bonnie Roach. Yeah, that's right. Remy LeBeau and Jason Wingard. In the comics, you may know them as Gambit and Mastermind, uh, which is, look... Y'all know how I feel about Gambit. But I'm excited for (laughs) Bill Heck to play this character in this show because the first season was tremendous. Hopefully you guys have checked it out. It is available on Marvel.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Super cool. And the second season is going to be dynamite. A lot of the creative team is all back. It's very exciting. Ben Percy, Chloe Persinos, and Brendan Baker and the whole crew. More details you can find on marvel.com. That's our top news for the week, but we have some really cool stuff this episode. Uh, Our interview is with Mr. Russell Bobbitt, who is the head of props for Marvel Studios. He is a wonderful man. I spent like six or seven hours hanging out with him January of this year. We'll talk a little bit about that later as our interview. We also have a really cool section this episode talking with Nick Lowe and Tom Brevoort, who are working on the editorial side of Marvel Knights. That's the 20th anniversary this year, and Marvel Knights 20th number one hit stands this week. It's really, really cool. So really fun episode up ahead. But now on to things we're hyped about this week, including news. One thing I saw on Marvel.com, which was really cool, is Captain Marvel is coming to Disneyland Paris's Marvel Summer of Superheroes, along with Groot, which joins Spider-Man, Iron Man, Captain America, and more. Also on Marvel.com, the Marvel Battle Royale is on, and now is your chance to weigh in. The matchups have already begun, starting with Squirrel Girl versus Deadpool, but you can still cast your vote by following Marvel on Twitter. So follow Marvel.com for the latest news on all the matchups that are coming up. It is truly a battle royale. I voted very early in the, the first matchup, and I was disappointed in the world <laughs> because Squirrel Girl was losing when I voted. She is unbeatable. Yeah, she is literally unbeatable. It's part of her name. People who vote for Deadpool are voting canonically wrong. So just be aware, but you know maybe there are batches of absentee ballots that have not been counted yet. Maybe so. Also, new this week, we uh, kicked off a new original video series called Marvel Make Me a Hero. The series is us talking with a fan and working with a comic book artist and have them develop a character together. It's really the fan says, yeah, this is you know my background. Here's what my character would be and powers, all this other stuff. And we have an amazing Marvel artist put it together. So in the first episode, we have artist Jacob Chabot, who's been doing the adorable covers for our Marvel Superhero Adventures line. I believe he used to work at Marvel in the production department of publishing. He's a great dude, really wonderful artist. He draws a character for an X-Men fan named Michelle. She has some really cool powers, like magma and lava and rock and really cool things. You know, it's, it's neat to see Jacob bring Michelle's thoughts to life, but to also see her react to it. Like, Aww. when you get this thing that is in your head and someone brings it to life, 
you can't beat that. It's so neat. Oh, and to have like a top-notch Marvel artist tackle it, that's got to be just beyond, beyond. Yep. And more of these to come. Hope you guys check it out. If you aren't subscribed to Marvel's pull list, you should do it because me and Tucker talk about all the new comics out this week, every week. And our four picks were Immortal Hulk, number eight, Spider-Geddon, number three, Star Wars, number 56, and Marvel Knights 20th anniversary, number one. Make sure you guys are subscribed to Marvel's pull list wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also watch video versions on Marvel.com. They're slightly different. Tucker and I, you know, we're having a good time showing a little ankle. I know. It's hot, 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 even in the winter. Giving people the vapors. Now let's get into our big talk section of the episode. Uh, We're going to dig into Marvel Knights because it is the 20th anniversary this year. It's really cool. And uh, as we mentioned, Marvel Knights 20th number one is one of the picks of the week. It's really cool. Donnie Cates and Travel Foreman and a bunch of other creators on this first issue and, you know, this, this whole series. But that's our way of celebrating it. In publishing, we've also been releasing collected editions for reprinting the original books. Uh, and it's it's just neat. It really did change a lot for Marvel. Let's go now to the talk with Nick Lowe and Tom Brevoort. Nick, Tom, how are you guys doing? <laughs> Great, Ryan. How are you? We're Real all right. good. We're all right. Yeah. <laughs> so we wanted to talk about Marvel Knights, the past the present and a little bit about the future of what is Marvel Knights, and especially because Marvel Knights 20th number one released this week. And so I figured you guys were good to talk about it because you have different perspectives, working on some of the older stuff, some of the current stuff, lots of in between and different things. But first thing I want to do is actually read an email we got in on our twin podcast at marvel.com inbox from listener Mo2x15. And Mo says, I'm sorry, what's an email? Is it, this is how it's going to go? I feel like I'm getting flashbacks of AVX days right. with the two of you just being yes. real punchy. Yes. And it's right. great. From the, from the storied family of 2X15. Yes. Uh, Mo says, hello, agents of Marvel. I was recently having a look through the Marvel Digital Store and noticed a sale on Marvel Knights material, which featured some Spider-Man stories, which I'm very tempted to get. However, I have no idea what Marvel Knights is or who they are. If that's the right question, Mo says. Can someone please explain what the term Marvel Knights means and possibly talk about some of the upcoming Marvel Knights issues slash books slash stories coming out soon? And this was... I didn't ask for this question yeah. necessarily. Like, this was a legitimate question. It's a real. Up. It's a real human being yeah. because you couldn't have come up with no two X one seven. You guys have known me a long <laughs> yeah, it's time. It's true. It's true. So back in the day, there was Baywatch. It was a daytime <laughs> lifeguard show, and then they made Baywatch Nights. And that was the inspiration, as far as I'm concerned, for I, Marvel I think, Knights. I think you're, it does explain why Joe was constantly walking around in a bathing suit. It's true. It's true. One of those uh, those neon green, like, over the shoulder, but it's also like a <laughs> yeah. deep exactly. V. Exactly. Uh, picture that, it listeners. So good. So good. Now, that was not it. No, no. Back in the day, you know, Marvel Knights has meant a couple of different things over the years. Going back to its actual formation, what Marvel Knights really was, was in those days, 20 years ago, Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti were independent comic book publishers. They had their own company, which was uh, Event, Event Comics, and they did Ash, and they did Painkiller Jane, and they did 22 Brides, and you know they were popular creators from that work and from the work they'd done previously for Marvel and DC. Um, so during that era, a deal was done with Event Comics where they would basically take four books, four characters, 
and relaunch them and do new things with them as, as sort of a little united deal. And those four original books were Daredevil, Punisher, Black Panther, and Inhumans. And the name of the imprint that they developed was Marvel Knights. So initially, that's who and what the characters were and what that was. Yeah. I'm curious, when did you start here, Tom? It was before that. Yeah. Uh, so, and, so what when was did the, the Jurassic period end? Oh, boy. <laughs> what was the landscape like at Marvel at that time where we would say to a group of indie comics publishers, amazing creators, but to say, hey, come in and work on a whole section? This was around the period, either right before or right during, when Marvel was in bankruptcy. And what was happening was the direct market had kind of started to collapse. The bubble of the speculator market and all the shenanigans that had happened in the early 90s had begun to shrink. This was right after Heroes Reborn. So Heroes Reborn happened, and that was Marvel making a deal with Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld to outsource a number of titles to them to produce, Fantastic Four, Avengers, Iron Man, and Captain America. Uh, and that deal had run its course, but as a, as a prototype for this kind of deal, it existed. This was also a period in which there was already infighting between different factions for control of Marvel, that literally, so directions changed and so forth, as a bunch of different people scrambled to wrest control of Marvel and to set the direction for the company. Consequently, people were trying a lot of different out-of-the-box crazy stuff to try and make things work, and uh, I believe it was Joe Calamari, uh, who had been a, a VP uh, of stuff at Marvel, and it was that period's president who had reached out to Joe and Jimmy after consulting with the guys at Wizard Magazine about who was hot or who it might be good to talk to about doing some stuff to expand the Marvel line and to reinvigorate a bunch of these characters. But yeah, it was it was chaos. <laughs> uh, all right. So then you mentioned the four launch books. You were here at the time. Right. What do you remember about Marvel Knights starting up? Well, the, the kind of stuff that I remember is the one thing that Joe and Jimmy tried to do differently is rather than like literally outsourcing the books and producing them out of whatever event comics workspace they had, they chose to come into the building and to occupy a set of offices and to try to create a sense of unity and camaraderie with the rest of Marvel editorial. And to some degree, they were successful. They were already oh, like very social guys. They would do Christmas parties every year, as it was for the freelance community and people that they knew. So this was a step that they took, and they occupied. You know, we were at 387 Park Avenue at that and those days, and they occupied for most of the stay there, this area just at the top of the building that was called the penthouse. That was theoretically the 13th floor, but wasn't actually a floor. It was kind of a structure that was built on top of the building. So you'd go up to the 12th floor, and there was a set of, like, fire stairs that would take you up to the top, you know, the roof of the building on which there was this separate standing structure, and that was the Marvel Knights offices. You know, it's not like it was a perfectly smooth thing because anytime you're outsourcing books, people get nervous. But, you know, they did their best to try to make it feel like it was all one larger extended family. Yeah. Nick, were you reading at the time? Were you a comic yeah, fan? I was. I was. I had just gotten back into It was mostly comics. Casper. Yeah. That's still the, pretty much the, the, the <laughs> utmost I can read. I, but I was, I was starting to get back into, into comics. I had left them behind for a little while. And I remember the announcement of it. And I remember hearing about Kevin Smith coming and doing Daredevil. And I remember picking up the books and being blown away. And if I recall, like one of the biggest things about it was they were going to 
not make decisions that Marvel at that time normally made. They were bringing in other writers than you're used to seeing on Marvel books. And I started interning in 2001. So, so about it, three years into... Yeah, about, about three years into it. And I got hired on in 2002, May of 2002, during kind of like the second wave of Marvel Knights when Brian Michael Bendis and Alex Malev were on Daredevil. Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon were kind of finishing up their first run of Punisher. Captain America just started being worked on as well at that time because it was just right after 9-11. So they just started coming out with issues of that. That was when I was an assistant editor in that office for nine months, and it was amazing. So Joe was already editor-in-chief at the time. Right. Nancy DeCasian, who's uh, Joe's wife, who has a long storied history in comics editing, going back to Archie for years there, and then worked on event comics with, with Joe and Jimmy. And I just remember on my first week getting to call Brian Michael Bendis and Neil Gaiman, uh, who's working on 1602 with Marvel Knights at the time, and Garth Ennis. Right away, out of the gate, you're working on a bunch of different projects, and you like your what did, who did you say your first day you were calling Neil oh, yeah. Garth and Brian Michael and Brian. Bendis. Yeah, he, he peaked there. <laughs> yes, it's true. But like I mean, like because Nancy handed me the lettering of Daredevil and was like, "Call Brian, get his notes." And so I was like, "Okay, here we go." And I was a big fan of Ultimate Spider-Man at the time and stuff like that. And uh, they called me so nice, generous with time. Same thing with Neil Gaiman. They're like, where's where's the script to 1602 number two? Call Neil, find out where it is, what's going on. All right, sounds good. Here's <laughs> the, here we go. And then, you know, Garth Ennis, one of the fun things at the time, Garth was a complete Luddite. He was anti-technology. He was living in Greenpoint and he owned a typewriter. And he used to just bring a typewritten script in or fax it from like the local bodega. But at one point, Nancy put her foot down and said, no, 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 you need to turn these in as a, a digital file. That's how the letters work. We're not going to have someone here retype your scripts up so that they can get lettered for that. But Garth didn't own a computer. So he came into the office. I was in there alone and there was an extra desk in there. And Garth would come in once a week and type up a script. And I had to teach him how to save, uh, how to print and the like, and then he would give me like uh, some of his favorite books by like, authors like Stephen Hunter and Derek Robinson, who's a, a war writer and stuff like that. And and we just have a, a, a great time sitting in there working and talking. And John and me trying to teach him how to use it, how to print. I'm uh, sure you learned as much oh my from him in just in those oh. single day a week than he was learning from you just learning about the computer. Uh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> no question. Well, I was I was 22 years old and knew nothing but thought I knew everything. I still knew more than Tom has ever learned. But I but yeah, but it was like there were just really fun days. You know, John Cassidy would come in with pages of Captain America and it'd be just unbelievable. Um so the first there were four books to start and there was Joe and Jimmy, how many books were going on when you come in? You know, about I mean, knights, knights tended to try and stay fairly small. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think at its at its height, you know, in terms of actual ongoing monthly titles, at most it was six, and there might have been an odd limited series yep. around the side, or, you know, or that sort of thing. Joe was always trying to make new things. He was always trying to look for something new to orchestrate. Same with I mean, Jimmy was it was no longer with Knights when I started working there. So I'm, I'm sure Jimmy was too, but I just didn't really <laughs> encounter that. But they were always trying to make new things. Like there's the Electra series going on at the time, you know, the various Black Widow series, Greg Rucka, Igor Corday, Black Widow miniseries that is a forgotten gem, I think, by a lot of people. And they also dabbled, they were kind of on the front side along with, with Axel Alonso starting the Max imprint. So like Blade Max came out of there 
and uh, Thor Vikings came out of there, which is Thor one of Vikings. my favorites. It's that's a messed up story. It's a messed <laughs> up story. Yeah, but I mean Jessica Jones came out yeah, of Alice. Marvel Knights yeah. office of Alias rather. Yeah, uh, like that started out of uh, Marvel Knights as well. So that was one of the first books I got to work on. I think it was about six, seven issues into that run. But yeah, it had gotten to be, I think, more about like eight a month plus because of the Mac stuff, uh, which was not technically Marvel Knights, but it was part of what the output was. That team. Right. Anyway. Yeah. I just like trying Yeah, to... like the Mac stuff doesn't, I mean, again, this is me parsing stuff very, very you? oddly. <laughs> but the Mac stuff never really counted as Marvel Knights. By which Says I mean, you. By which I mean. The imprint. There was a deal to produce those books. And the Mac's books, were while they were produced out of that office, uh, the books you're talking about were not part of that deal. I like the wheels turning nope. in each of your yep. heads. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll move on. Yeah. So from you, I, I hear lots of ideas, big, fun, new, exciting. Tom, when you think of Marvel Knights, what what do you think of? I just think of Nick now. <laughs> he's, he blots out everything. Um, you know, uh, again, my experience with Marvel Knights started earlier than Nick's. So by the time Nick came in, and I don't mean this particularly as a slight on Nick. <laughs> Not particularly. You know, well, everything with Nick is a slight. But you know, by the time he's talking about, to me, that's post-Knights, which is to say, to me, what Marvel Knights was, it was, it was Joe and Jimmy and them putting out these books. Once Joe became editor-in-chief, that sort of changed in that it couldn't help but change. Marvel Knights had a particular point of view and a particular ethos and a way they went about casting their projects and a way they went about building them. And once Joe became editor-in-chief, that sensibility tended to bleed out to the rest of the line. So it's not like those projects in the period Nick is talking about were not good, but more of the rest of the line at that point felt more of a kind because they were coming from the same editorial point of view at the top. Hmm. Which I, th- I think was fun. I remember like a lot of those books, like it's what got me back into comics at a certain point. It was really exciting when I was in college and stuff. Mm-hmm. Tom, you're one of the editors of the Marvel Knights 20th series. I am, although uh, I am crediting myself as custodian <laughs> rather than editor. <laughs> Why is that? Because I think that Marvel Knights is Jimmy and Joe. To me, Marvel Knights is those guys and their creative vision. And so anything that we're doing is really just kind of reflecting the things they did rather than really kind of following that direction and and doing new stuff in the way they would have done. Yeah, I really enjoyed the first issue. Cool mysteries and and the tone definitely feels like it fits Mm -hmm. uh, of what you're talking about, what you're trying to evoke. What is the the series about for some of our listeners who they're it's brand new, so they may not have picked it up yet? And then how did this project actually come to fruition? Okay, well, what the series is about, you know, and I can't say too much because the whole thing is a big unfolding onion-like mystery. But we open on page one, and uh, Matt Murdock is in a graveyard in front of Karen Page's grave, and he doesn't know why he's there, and he doesn't quite know who he is, and he's approached by a patrol car and a a cop, and the cop is Frank Castle, and he says, there's something that you need to know, and Castle tells him that he's Daredevil, and he gets this flood of memories back and remembers at least bits and pieces of this life that he had as a blind adventurer that suddenly something has happened to change this or to damp this down. As we go through the first issue, we discovered that the whole of the Marvel Universe is like that, that all of the heroes and all the villains have pretty much been erased, neutralized, wiped out. And the mystery is what has happened, what has brought this about, 
who or what is behind this? Can it be reversed? How do we get there? And that's the thing that plays out over the six issues. So it's a very grounded sort of a story in that it starts with Daredevil and the Punisher, but it's a story that has an impact on the whole of the Marvel Universe, the biggest stuff and the, the smallest stuff in the same sort of way that Marvel Knights did. Marvel Knights was, you know, Daredevil and the Black Panther and the Punisher, but it was also the Inhumans and the Sentry and, you know, all these other bigger things as what, you know, Fantastic Four, one, two, three, four, and all these bigger ideas as well. So this is kind of a story that touches on all the various corners of the, the Marvel Knights identity. Yeah. I think uh, Donnie is great, but Travel Foreman feels like he could have been cast in those early books. He's so good. So good. He is great. Yeah. So how did the, how did the title actually come together? Um, it's sort of a, a weird thing. Like, we were coming up on the anniversary of, of Marvel Knights, and we have our regular three or four times a year we do editorial summits where we bring all, all of our key talent in and our editorial staff gets together to talk about and plot out all the stuff that's coming down the pike. And Donnie Cates apart from being just a madman, was a huge Marvel Knights fan. And so he went to Joe and said, Joe, what are you doing for the Marvel Knights anniversary? Like, you know, it's coming up. I know you got big plans. I want to be a part of it. And Joe said, like, we're not doing anything. I'm hugely busy. I got all this other stuff to do. I can't do a thing. And Donnie was very disappointed by this, but he kind of kept hammering on it every time he would see Joe. And so finally, Joe kind of said, well, look, if you want to do this, then go ahead and do it. You know, you should do it, not me. I've done it already. My guys have done it. Why don't you put together a bunch of guys and build a story and it could be a 20th anniversary story and mark that moment. And so Donnie went away and talked with me about it because somebody here had to actually manage it. And he, uh, you know, brought in kind of like a bunch of other writers from his crew, his, his corner of the Marvel universe, Matt Rosenberg and Teeny Howard and uh, Vita Ayala. And he kind of built the, the structure of this six issue series and this mystery into which each of them could kind of bring their own their own uh, point of view and do their own component issues, and yet the whole thing will be of a piece. So Donnie is directly writing the first issue and the last issue, one and six, and then Matt is doing two and five. Tini wrote three, and Vita wrote four. That's awesome. I'm not familiar with Vita's work yet. I'm sure I will it's be. One of, it, this is one of her first, if not her first, Marvel script. She's yeah. done a lot of stuff, you know, again, in independent comics yeah. and self-published and, and creator-owned. Yeah. And Teeny, I think, is fantastic. Yeah, so yeah, both good. of them. The, the Vita script in particular is super good. Uh, and everybody involved, like, they did a really nice job. And, you know, not just them, but the artists as well. Uh, you know, besides travel, there's Nico Hendrickson, who does the two issues with Matt. There's Damien Cusiero. Uh, Josh... There's some great Iron Fist issues, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Josh Kassara. Ooh. Oh yeah, I love Josh's stuff. And Kim Jacinto. That is exciting stuff. I'm I'm looking forward to more issues coming out. We're going to wrap up a little bit. I want to know just personally your tastes, your experiences with these books. What are your favorite Marvel Knights stories? My favorite story is the saga of Detective Love. Um, I mean, everyone knows Detective Love, of course. Of course. But in case they're astronauts who've been in space for many years and just come out or like... I know somebody I'd like to send it to space. Anyone out of cryogenic freeze who is for years. Uh, But he was one of the detectives in the second arc of the Bendis Malev run whose visual was based on me because Alex was a friend. He lived around the corner from me. So I modeled for Detective Love. He's the one who tears open Matt Murdock's shirt to reveal his Daredevil costume. Only there is no Daredevil costume there. (laughs) 
And it's a, that he's sounds a, like something yep, you do. He's classic a, Nick. He's an absolute idiot, and it's <laughs> wonderful. But I think like Thor Vikings, I might have to say, like a, a hidden gem that Is you that should pick Max up. Is that Max or Knights? That's Max, but again, yeah, we, but it was all through that same Sure, right. Right. I reread that Tom recently. Tom would say no, but I would say... <laughs> I, and another, I mean, everyone talks about like Inhumans, of course, is amazing. The Guardian Devil is one of the best comics of all time. But like they're the hidden gems. Like again, the, the Rucka Corday Black sure. Widow is awesome. I think it's only three issues and it's so good. Tom, what about you? Um, yeah, certainly when it was coming out, the first half of the run in particular, Brian and Alex's Daredevil was like my favorite Marvel comic. I liked you know, all the various things that Grant did. I liked Fantastic Four, one, two, three, four, and I like Marvel oh, Boy. Boy. And Nick mentioned the Inhumans series. Certainly, Priest's Panther was pretty great. There were a lot of really good and really wild books during that time. There's a short-lived anthology called Marvel Knights Double Shot that had a... Is that the Nick Fury story you're thinking of? There's a Nick Fury story in there that's amazing. Yeah. There is a Garth and Joe Q Punisher short story. It takes place at the dentist. Right. That's amazing. Oh, and there's a sweet Dave Gibbons written Lee Weeks drawn Captain America oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. miniseries or arc. As well, yeah. That uh, the the it's like an alternate reality. Yes, oh, I love yes. that story it, so much. Hitler one, there's like zeppelins in New York yep. City yep. and stuff like that. It's oh, so yeah. awesome. That's the good stuff. So awesome. I remember so many good ones. I know. It's hard to pick. I remember. <laughs> I lived in Greenpoint when Daredevil was coming out of the Bendis Malev, and I remember reading an issue. It was right around the time of the identity reveal, and I just threw it in my stack, and I just sat there. It had such a profound like yep. this is. Damn good comics. Yep. And I think that's a good legacy for Marvel Knights. Heck for yeah. sure. For Damn sure. Damn good comics. Damn cool. good comics. Thank you guys for joining us on This Week in Marvel. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be here. Bye, everybody. Big thanks to Nick and Tom for uh, sparing the time. They are super busy putting out all of the comic books, so actually being able to grab a little time with them to reminisce and talk about the past, present, future of Marvel Knights was really neat. And as we're going to get into our interview section with Mr. Russell Bobbitt, I wanted to take a quick second to thank our advertiser, Marvel MasterCard, because if you have a Marvel MasterCard, you could probably spend some of that sweet, sweet credit card cash. Is that a thing? It's They're kind of opposites, but... I see what you're saying. Yeah. I'm picking up what you're putting down. On Russell's Marvel Masterworks collection, which we'll get into in a little bit. But if you want to be the superhero of your life, apply for the Marvel MasterCard. You can learn how at marvelmastercard.com slash twim. And you can earn 3% cashback rewards paid as a statement credit on comic books, movies, restaurants, and more with the Marvel MasterCard. And 1% cashback rewards paid as a statement credit on all other purchases. There's no limit on the cashback rewards you can earn. You can also enjoy special Marvel benefits like three months of a Marvel Unlimited subscription. And you can choose your superhero from one of six awesome card designs like Iron Man, Black Panther, and Spider-Man, among others. Visit marvelmastercard.com slash twim to learn more and apply today. marvelmastercard.com slash T-W-I-M. And like we mentioned with uh, the Marvel MasterCard, you can use that to get cash back, even 1% back if you dive into the Marvel Masterworks collection, which you can check out at marvelmasterworkscollection.com. That is this really cool line of limited edition prop duplicates fabricated by Russell Bobbitt, Marvel Studios head of props, and his team. It is incredible. And Russell, he's amazing because I've seen his workshop. That's where we did the interview that you're going to hear. But Russell is 
wonderful. He's Marvel Props on Twitter. I hope you guys enjoyed this interview and um, hopefully we'll be doing lots more with Russell in time. Thank you for letting us into your home away from home, your props warehouse. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. When you say home away from home, it's more like the home. <laughs> uh, I'm here a lot, and uh, and it's good to have visitors. Yeah, and there's so much here. I'm not exaggerating when I say my eyes like got wide and popped out of my head multiple times walking through because of things that we've seen that we can talk about, that we can't talk about, that fans would lose their mind from. So I don't even know where to start because there's so much cool stuff here, but I want to dig, sort of go back a little bit to how you got into the prop making game. Like your first movie was in like the mid eighties. Yeah. Yeah. I did uh, what was called then a movie of the week first. Uh, the, the way I got into the business was very fortunate and unfortunate. I had a house burned down and uh, my mother happened to be dating someone who was a set decorator. A set decorator puts all the furniture on the set, the curtains, the lights, and his name was Bob Gould, and he, he gave me an opportunity. He said, you just lost everything in a fire. That's what happens. Come work for me for three weeks. I'll give you $1,000 a week so that you can buy clothes, and we'll be done. Thank you very much. Brilliant opportunity. Great guy to do that. And I've had about three weeks off since. It's been 36 years. <laughs> um, what was the movie of the week? It was called Special Bulletin. Directed by Ed Herskowitz and Marshall, forgot his last name, but uh, great directors. And it was about a nuclear blast and surviving it. Yep. And it was a great experience. I learned the etiquette and the casualty of filmmaking when we got on the set, and this is my first day on set. And uh, he said to me, hey, grab me two cups of coffee. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I, you know, I'm new. I'm the coffee boy. And I went and I grabbed him two handfuls of coffee. And what I didn't know is the directors had said, Bobby, the set's not right. It just doesn't look right. It's, it just looks too new. So in the meantime, Bobby had asked me to get two cups of coffee. I hand him the two cups of coffee and he pours them out all over the walls of the set. And he said, now the set's ready. And the director said, oh my God, that's great. <laughs> Let's shoot. And I thought, what did I just step into? This is not like anything you would think work should be. Yeah. And I right away, I then knew that being jovial was good and being casual is good. And if you're out of the ordinary a little bit, people are going to recognize you and dig it. So I ran with it. I fell in love with being on set. You also worked, uh, we talked a little bit off camera about working on uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. What was that like? That was a, such a cool visual movie. Um, obviously, you're working on the Marvel movies, but... What was it like working on Bram Stoker's? Well, first off with Bram Stoker's Dracula, you're working with Francis Coppola. You know, you, you work in this business many years and there's very few people that you're in awe of. Francis was one of those people that you go to set and you're like, oh my goodness, is this really happening? Pinch me, right? He's one of those guys. Robert De Niro's another one that I've worked with that I got that feeling from. But Dracula had such incredible production design and such great people working on the film that you had to kind of step up your game from whatever your game was. Mm -hmm. Even if you had a good game, you wanted to step up your game. Yeah. So we did, and we played in that arena of like, this is going to be the perfect looking film. 
it's Francis's job to make it a good story film and the actors, but we wanted to really show that support and love and talent. And we did amazing things on that. If you're familiar with the film and you see the, the buggy chase, you know, they're in a horse and carriage. Mm -hmm. It's a 10 minute chase. We did that on stage at Sony. Stage 15 and 16 connect with each other. So we opened them up and we're riding a horse and buggy round and around and in a figure eight as fast as the horses could run for days and days to shoot that scene. And it was just such a, a great sort of step out of your skin kind of movie mm -hmm. uh, that it was, it was an incredible experience. And doing a period film is always um, challenging, yeah. fun, exciting. Do you find it more, I don't know if there's, is there a difficulty or an ease to doing say a period film versus a cool space movie like, you know, a Guardians of the Galaxy or a Star Trek or something like that? Is it just a different feel? What is that? Like? Completely different. Uh, with a period film, there are rules. It makes it kind of easy. You know, a pair of sunglasses in the 1700s is a pair of sunglasses in the 1700s. And you, if you change that, you're wrong for the period. So there are rules that you have to live by, which kind of make it easy, especially mm -hmm. now because you can get on the computer and find whatever you want to find in life. And so it's more challenging when there are no rules. Mm -hmm. So an outer space movie, a director will come up to you and say, get me an outer space gun. Now, I got to be careful not to make an outer space gun look like it's from all the other outer space movies. Mm -hmm. And the interpretation of an audience of what a space gun is, is based on other films. Because that's all they've seen. That's all they know. So our challenge is to create space guns that haven't been seen, that still tell the story that I'm a space gun. And not only do we just do space guns, but we do everything in outer space. Okay, we need to drink out of a cup. Okay. Hey, get, fellas, I get on my walkie-talkie. Bring me an outer space cup. <laughs> like, really, we're, like, running and manufacturing those kind of things yeah. and designing them. So it's a way bigger challenge. Yeah, I, I want to get into sort of the, the no rules and sort of the way you manufacture stuff nowadays. But before we get there, I do want to talk about Star Trek a little bit and, and sort of there were some challenges, right, because this was – taking something that's so iconic and so known visually and bringing it to new audiences, a new era. How do you, as a prop master, retain the original feel but also put your own touches and your, your own modernity to it? Right. Great question. And, and again, you're hitting on all my big challenges. Uh, let me start with how did I get on Star Trek? I get a call and I hear that they're making a Star Trek movie that J.J. Abrams is directing. And I was like, okay, great, wonderful. It's, you know, I'll, sure I'll meet with him. Who says no to that? I go in and JJ sits me down and he goes, so are you a Star Trek fan? Hear that silence? <laughs> That's what happened in the room. I was like, well, I can't say that I like, have seen all the episodes. I've seen Star Trek. Am I a big fan of Star Trek? I probably couldn't claim that at that point. And he goes, great, you're hired. And I was like, what? He goes, yeah, I don't want the avid Star Trek fan to work props on my movie because I want to, I already have the fans. They're my audience. I want to make a movie for the non-fan. And if you're not it, you're on my movie. I had a resume to sure. back it up. and I'm a prop guy. I do my job. So that's how I get on this film. Then he says to me, maybe two meetings later, he goes, so how are you going to make a cool communicator? 
I was like, well, JJ, reach into your right pocket. What's in there? He reaches into his right pocket and he pulls out a cell phone. I said, that's a cool communicator. He goes, whoa, you're right. What are we going to do? I was like, well, we have to appease the fan. We have to make sure that thing flips because a communicator needs to flip in Star Trek's world. <laughs> but let's add hologram. Not that hologram should be the highest tech thing going right now, but it's what the audience knows as high tech and cool. We saw Princess Leia do it and they went crazy, right? Let's, let's not sway too much, but let's give them a flip communicator that looks good. Let's redesign it. Let's make it out of more current materials and give me a shot at it. And he liked the idea, and, and we drew several of them and built it, and it turned out to be a good communicator. We did the same thing with the phaser. It's those things sometimes you just stumble upon. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, you get your fans who say, this should have been, you know, next gen, and it should have been the original 1967 piece. Well, I have to make it cooler than that because of the non-fan needs to see something. If somebody that's never seen Star Trek sees the first gen phaser, they're like, oh, well, that's something. <laughs> so... That's super neat. Um, so, all right, how do you get into the Marvel world? Yes, I get. Uh, I got a call one day. I had worked on Charlie's Angels, and a dear friend, Michael Riva, the late great Michael Riva, production designer, and I had worked on Charlie's Angels, and he had gotten the call to do Iron Man One. Luis D'Esposito put that crew together, and Michael called me in and said, "Would you please meet with Luis?" We're doing a film, and I think you'd be good for it. So I go into Beverly Hills, and there was a small office above a Mercedes-Benz dealership. And uh, I go into the office, and I sit down at Luis D'Esposito's office, which was a quaint little office with one guest chair and his and one desk and a whiteboard. And I sit down, and he, he explains to me that we're going to do this movie about a guy who goes in a metal suit and flies around and saves the world. And I thought, oh, oh wow, okay. That sounds interesting, but I'm in, I'm game. What's it called? Iron Man, it's called. And I thought, great, well, let's embrace that and figure it out and research it. And yeah, it's based on a comic book and uh, okay, great. I wasn't familiar, mm -hmm. I'm sorry to say. We'll forgive to the, you. To the crowd, thank you. Yeah. But, uh, and then I look to my right and I see this whiteboard and literally in dry erase markers was a list of 10 or 12 films and I just looked over and I read Iron Man, so I knew that was they were film titles. And then it said Iron Man 2, Captain America, and Thor, and Iron Man 3. And, uh, and I looked at it and I just I had this weird moment in my own space about that whiteboard. And I thought, gee, how aggressive is that? That's this, <laughs> this guy is in an office with one desk and a whiteboard. And he's got a whole list like scribbled on a board of all these film titles. And that was 10 years ago. And not only have all those films been made, yeah. but another 10 have been. Yeah, it's, it's wild. So, all right, so you join with Iron Man because at the time it's, you know, Marvel Studios was figuring it all out. What is the set like in those early days? I think, uh, you know, Favreau, John Favreau, our leader and our creator, I consider him one of the, great creators of this universe that we live in. He kept the set calm and jovial and serious. He's real serious about what he does and he takes it very seriously and he expects you to be educated and prepped 
and yet he's still human and he's figuring it out as well, right? Mm -hmm. So even down to like the cave scene where Robert had to solder things and create his first arc reactor, I'm in there teaching him how to solder and uh, you know, the team just gets together and keeps it fun, keeps it light without a real plan sometimes. We get in there, we do it, and the smoke comes up from the solder, and Robert's in a magnifying glass, and it becomes this beautifully orchestrated scene because this team comes together with all the planning that we had, and it works. And it was a really huge turning point in that film for me, in that three days later, after they had cut the scene roughly together, John Favreau comes up to me, and we're shooting, and he puts his hand out, and he hands me something, and I put my hand out, and I take it, and I open my hand, and it's a single-wrapped lifesaver. And it was his way of saying to me, thanks for saving that scene, because uh, we didn't really know how it was going to come out. And they, this was the set where they wanted the breath to come out, and they refrigerated this set to th 32 degrees, and it was freezing in there, and, and we're making arc reactors, and who knew about like what a arc reactor should be? And so we all just... <laughs> I mean, we did research. It's all based on cold fusion and nuclear power. And why? Do, why? why How is this going to work? And how are we going to keep the shrapnel away from his heart? So this being Iron Man being Marvel Studios' first film, obviously you go in there, you're like, okay, sure, let's do this. You know, you're, you're ready to roll. What do you feel like by the end of the production and then when the movie hits? I remember because I had been at Marvel for a little while, sitting in the movie theater when we have the company screening and looking around and going, oh my God, this is the best. This is incredible. They cracked the code. They made this amazing movie. How was it for you? Yeah, well, we all felt that, right? Until you see the movie first, it's still a guy flying in a metal suit. Is this ever going to work? You know, are people going to buy it? Are the computer graphics folks in post-production going to pull this off so that it doesn't look hokey? that it looks like he's flying through space. The first flight test gear I made, and we we're flying him on wires in a stage, and, you know, does he make the right movements? Is it all going to sell? Is it all going to work well in the end product? Obviously, when it did, not if it did, but when it did, there was a sigh of relief. But not only was there a sigh of relief, but there was a phone call that said, are you available for the next one? <laughs> Now that's the moment where you know it works. How long were you off? How long do you get, when do you get back on? And like, how do you dive back into the next movie? My particular job requires a lot of pre-production. So I come on four to five months before we start shooting. Then we shoot for on average, you know, six to eight months. And then I have maybe three, four weeks, a month of, of wrapping it all up and inventorying everything. So when I'm on a Marvel show, it's lasting eight to nine, ten months, sometimes a year. It takes a long time. The Marvel machine and the train that I talk about hasn't let me off. <laughs> I've been on that train for quite a while. The perception of what a prop master does is, you know, they make the cool things that people interact with. But you're also talking about how you're a creator in a lot of other ways in these films. You're actually providing lore, you're providing story, you're providing elements that inform what the movie, the story is, which is super cool. And we see that in a lot of the work that you know you have behind us, you have in your prop warehouse, and like there's pieces that you're adding so much to, which is neat. Do you have any particular stories about that kind of stuff in the Marvel films? Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like I get a lot of repeat performance, meaning I think I get rehired by a lot of people because I'm not just a prop guy. I care about the story and I care about 
things. Safety, by the way, I, I have to run all the weapons on a set, so I'm the safety officer when we shoot guns. When we shoot guns, they're real guns that are modified for blinks. We don't shoot live ammunition ever. So part of our job is to make sure people are safe and so on and so forth. So I really work closely, and if I see something wrong, if I see something that pops for me that goes, is this going to make sense? And we're in the heat of a moment where 150, 200 people are all trying to get a shot and it's late and it's the last shot of the night and they're like, well, yeah, just do that or just throw that in there and let's shoot. And I'll be the voice of reason sometimes and I'll go to a producer or a director and say, you know, it won't take us that much more time to just turn that car or, you know, not see that the sun is rising or whatever it is. And they'll be like, oh, okay, well, the prop guy gave us an idea that could work. They see that. They allow me to be that and they allow me to be more than just a prop guy. And that's, I think, why I'm part of the Marvel family or any family on any film that, I, that I'm working on. I wouldn't be talking about it if I didn't have that in me, that passion. Yeah, the, the passion is, is apparent. Uh, I wanted to get into a couple of the iconic Marvel props. We have Mjolnir, for instance. Even here, just walking around, I saw there's like six or eight of them over there. There's two on the tables behind us. How many of Thor's hammer have you built over the years? Over the years, we're probably up to about 60. The best looking one is always gonna be metal, but it weighs 60 pounds. Very hard to lift when Thor is supposed to lift it. So I make the fiberglass one, which is the next best looking one. The reason we make them in all those different materials is that metal is for close-ups. The fiberglass one is lightweight. So he can carry that around when he doesn't need to throw it or catch it or hit anybody with it. We use that. The hard rubber is if he's running and falls down or it doesn't hit anybody. And then the soft rubber is like a sponge. He can literally hit someone over the head with it and they'd be safe. That is the reason we do that with many of the props and the cap shield is the same. And anything that sees action yeah. has to be dealt with that way. And that's why we have so many of them. They also have to look good throughout the film. And so every time we do 15 takes of Thor hammer hitting the ground, the Thor hammer starts to take a beating and starts to not look so good. So I have to have eight or 10 Thor hammers for that particular shot. Do you go through more cap shields over, you know, say the same span of films or more Thor hammers? Because it seems like the cap shields go a lot quicker. Yeah, I would have to say that the cap shields, we use more of those. I probably have 140 or so of those right now. I always use the antidote of uh, a cap shield has a life expectancy of about three scenes because of the battle damage it takes, and it's harder to repair that. The Thor hammer, and just for the listeners, I know it's called Mjolnir, um, <laughs> is easier to repair. The paint job on that is much more friendly to a quick repair than the cap shield is. Once the cap shield gets a ding in it, I can't repair it anymore. I can't sand it down and repaint it on the spot. Yeah. So I always have a good amount of clean shields ready to go. With the cap shields, one of the things that I thought was really cool was you were showing us the different shields was how you've evolved and figured out the best ways to manufacture these, to make these, to fit the scenes and to fit the actors really over the course of films. Has it been the same thing with Thor hammers? Have they evolved in that same way? Because with your cap shield, you now Chris can walk around for hours and hours and hours with the best looking shield because of what you've developed. Yeah, the Thor hammer 
has developed. If you watch Thor 1, you'll see that it's not as detailed as the rest of Mar. There was one with a very plain handle, and it was what Kenneth Branagh had seen in his vision as the Thor hammer. Well, as we moved on, I think it was the Avengers, the first Avengers movie, the handle took on a new life and developed into this more detailed piece and it, it stuck and, and it's a great design and it's, you know, it's something I would want to have on my shelf. Whereas the Cap Shield, uh, story-wise, we want to keep it looking the same. In the story, there's only ever one Cap Shield, really. The Cap Shield challenges are that it's more practical, that we can use, like you said, the metal one more often than using a rubber one. So I went and on Infinity Wars, we made a much lighter shield. I, I shaved six pounds off the original metal shield in our new design, and that, that helps a lot. And, and Mr. Captain America appreciated it <laughs> tremendously. Yeah, I imagine you're going through these films with these actors over and over again that do you build a rapport with them about things that they like, they don't like, they want, they, because they're working with your materials all the time more than anyone else, do you get a lot of feedback from the actors themselves? Yes, I get tons of feedback from the actors in that if any little thing is uncomfortable for them, I'm the guy that jumps in there and makes it better. So if you work with somebody for years as opposed to one film, they start to understand what you can and can't do, and they will know to ask if they're uncomfortable. Sometimes, you know, they just figure it is what it is. Well, with our guys, they certainly know to say to me, hey, you know, this is hurting my wrist a little, or I'm getting a little scratched here because there's something you can do. And I do it, and I fix it, and I make it work. And so you develop that rapport, and then you develop trust. Sometimes an actor might not even like particularly what I hand them, but they know that it's r the right prop for the scene, and they'll make it work. So my goal is always to make the prop become part of the character. Yeah. So it's seamless. And they are, like they have been. The, no, the arc yeah. reactor, the, the hammer, the, sh the shield, like that all becomes very yeah. seamless, as you say. Yeah. We talk about a lot of weapons and hard, tangible things, but also what you've brought out for us to see in this visit, we've got the little baby Groot, and he's squishy and adorable. We've got the full-size rocket. What's the difference between creating, say, something like that, that's organic, that lives and breathes, versus something that is hard metal is going to be hit, knocked around, and potentially broken. Yeah, the rocket and Groot aspect of this job is very interesting. They're characters in the film. So I'm not just dropping a prop off to an actor. I'm dropping a prop off that is the actor. And so it's my responsibility to puppeteer Rocket and Groot for the actors, so I, I give them an eyeline. And we always do a take or two where I'm there acting with the actors. So again, that goes back to I take a little step beyond what a prop guy does and I contribute to the film to make it wonderful. Well, it's one of those things where, well, where do we store Rocket and Groot? Store them on the prop truck. So when I bring Rocket to the set and James Gunn says, okay, Rocket does this, that, and that, and he moves over there, and after that line he moves over there, there's no one there to do that but me. And so we do it. You know, and Sean Gunn is on set all the time, James' brother, playing Rocket, who is the most agile, brilliant actor that I've met in quite a while, because James Gunn goes out there, or Sean Gunn, rather, and squats down to Rocket's height and walks like a racket. Like, it's amazing. It's absolutely fascinating. So I watch him, and then I puppeteer Rocket on our reference takes, and I follow Sean Gunn's lead. 
And then Groot is all me. I just, <laughs> they tell me where he wants to go, and I bring him there. It's kind of fun. It's kind of cool. It, it allows me to experience what the actors are experiencing. And of course, we have the Infinity Gauntlet, which for me is like the ultimate Marvel personification of power and cool cosmic craziness because it's something I grew up with and something that I'm so excited to see and seeing it in person. I just want to say thank you. Yeah. That's it. I just want to say thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're uh, welcome. You, I appreciate it. You worked on yeah. in, in helping bring this to life and it looks friggin' incredible. It, it really feels and it works like real armor. Was that your call? Was that Did that come from the Russos? Who said, we want this gauntlet to feel like a real piece of armor? I love giving credit where credit is due. And so I'm going to take credit for that. I have this theory about props in films. If you make a really cool prop, that camera's going to come in and look at that prop. And if it's just an okay prop, it might be overlooked. It might be passed over. No one will care about it. So what I did is I provided for the Russos what I thought would be a really cool set of materials to use and uh, the size and the weight of it and all. And they see that. When they say to me, we need a close-up shot of that prop, I know I've done my job. And we do a lot of close-ups of the Infinity Gauntlet. So, yes, I, I knew of and have worked with this blacksmith that I've used for years, Tony Swatton, in Burbank, California. And I called him up. I knew he was the man for the job. And so I worked with him for months and months. We went back and forth about his opinions, my opinions, how big should it be, how small, you know, all of that. Leave me room for the stones that I'm going to create separately. And there's going to be electronics and lights that come through it and all of that good stuff. And that's how we sort of came up with the, the concept for materials. Yeah. The gauntlet is kind of a lore, a piece of lore. That's one of the pieces where I never said we should make something cooler than the lore describes. It's one that I thought this should be, you should hit this one on the head. Get as close as you can. Let this be recognizable and cool. And in the story... It allows for it to be brass, hammered brass and copper and, you know, and all that. Yeah. So I didn't need to reinvent the wheel on that one. I just had to deliver the wheel. It's a good wheel. Yeah. Believe me. Thanks. Yeah, I, Thank I, you. I dig it. You know, we talk about that. It's brass, metal, copper, all these pieces. But I think what I found really interesting walking around and talking to you here uh, in your workspace is that there's so much cool 3D printed stuff. Has that changed the way you work and the way you think about what you're making? It has. 3D printing has really uh, gave us great shortcuts to getting to a place where in the past would have taken a lot longer to get to. So we use it a lot. I have four 3D printers in my office that are running constantly. If not for the actual prop, it's great for scale. You can hit a button go to sleep, wake up the next morning, and you've got a piece that you can look at and go, you know, that's a little too big. I'm going to hit the button again, go to sleep, wake up, and find my new one that's the right size. And then there are many items that I can actually grow parts that I will use. So I'll use metal and a 3D grown part together that can be painted well and, you know, make look like it's gold or whatever material I need. Yeah, I think you said there was one piece you were you were cooking that was like 244 hours or something? Yeah, yeah, it was up there. It's probably finishing as we speak. I'd love to run in there and take it off the bed and see if it worked <laughs> with you. I can show it to you. Well, to check it You'll out. You'll appreciate it. I'm sure I will. What has been the most challenging prop that you've had to create? 
I've got to say, like, in our Marvel universe, it's got to be the arc reactor because the arc reactor is ever-changing. Every time we start a new film that Robert Downey Jr. is in, and he needs an arc reactor, and that was all but one, I think, or two of them, I meet with Robert. I go to his house. We sit down, and we talk about why the arc reactor should change and why is it changing, what is it doing differently. How does the arc reactor tell the story in this particular film? And it's a fascinating process that we conceptualize the impossible and then I go and manufacture the impossible. That's a gift for me that's been given to me to be able to do that. And so it's definitely one up there in one of the top, you know, two or three that are difficult and yet keeps my brain moving. It, It keeps me going. Before we wrap, what advice would you give to folks who want to get into this field, who want to start making props, maybe not quite your level, but on this level of on a production, on a film, doing this kind of cool stuff? Well, first of all, I invite people to do it at my level. But what I say to people in this day and age, because again, I've been doing it for 36 years, the industry has changed tremendously. Start looking at drawing 3D CAD drawings. Think about digital stuff. Think about what life presents you when you pull out your cell phone. How was that made? Study it. Really look at things that you don't ever look at. And if you can wrap your head around any item, and that could be a pencil or a cell phone or a computer, a motherboard, the beauty today is that you've got the internet and you can learn all that stuff. You can learn about making molds or welding or painting. All applies to a prop master. I have to know what kind of leather looks good when it's wet. I have to know how materials react with each other. I have an employee that came to me the other day and said, I want to think like you. When something's broken, you have three answers on how to fix that right now. And I want to be that guy. And I said, you've got 30 more years and you'll be that guy. It all comes with experience, but we've all started somewhere. Uh, Russell, where are fans going to find you on social media? I am at Marvel Props on Twitter and Instagram. We gotta get you verified on the IG. Yes, we do. Yeah, you helped me out with the Twitter, and I appreciate it. We'll do it for, um, for Instagram. Remind and me. when you retweet me, things go crazy. <laughs> it's great. It's like I try to find that balance because I could just retweet everything that you post, right. and then it's just like, well, guys, follow him. Yeah, just that, follow him. And I don't know where to, when I'm overstepping my boundaries either. <laughs> I, I don't want to tag you in everything, but uh, you've been great. I appreciate what you do, and you light up your own universe. And so, what you're doing is awesome, and I hope to see you forever on the train that we're all on. I like this train. Yeah. It's fun. It's uh, yeah. It, it, again, it goes back to passion. You're passionate about all this cool stuff. I'm passionate about all this. It's fun. Yeah. We're having a good time. It, it shows. Yeah. Big thanks to Russell Bobbitt and the Marvel Studios team for uh, helping us put this all together. It was in incredible. And, you know, I was thinking about this. Our question of the week should be, if you could own one original Marvel prop, what would it be? Ooh. Yeah. I have Agamotto. That was quick. Yeah. I've always wanted one. Mm. I've always wanted one. My first runner up is Captain America shield for sure. Just because it's cool. And I've always felt really badass holding shields. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they're, they're defensive, but that shield is offensive. So I I dig it. But yeah, I have Agamotto for sure. Yeah. I think I'd want Loki's scepter. Ooh. I just think it's so neat and so interesting looking. Uh, the design of it is is wonderful. Yeah. With or without an Infinity Stone in it? Gotta have it with. Okay. Yeah. 
I'm a stone boy. Understandable. Yep. And that, again, is our question of the week. Which original Marvel prop would you want to own? You can tweet your answers using hashtag ThisWeekInMarvel. Email them to twimpodcast at marvel.com or send a message to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash thisweekinmarvel. And now it is appropriate that we go right into the community section. Simon Williams says his twim of the week for October 31st was Vault of Spiders number one. And he says... The greatest truth in all of truths <laughs> that Japanese Spider-Man needs his own series. I, I definitely walked into Nick Lowe's office and yelled at him about how good that story was. <laughs> and he was like, I know. And we just yelled at each other for like five minutes, crying tears of joy. It was great. I love it. Simon Williams says, reading West Coast Avengers number three, it's okay, bro, doc. I know Agent M loves you. I do. He's so handsome. Is he? He's got that big head and those, that like golden skin and he flies. Uh, yeah. Lots of bonus stuff on the way. Some really cool episodes. Hope you guys dig them. Uh, we'll be back with another episode next week. I'm Ryan. And I'm Jamie. And this is Marvel. Your universe. Your universe.